and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, ECFR's podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and I'm joined today for a special podcast on Iran and the Iranian nuclear deal and its regional implications by three experts. With me is Paul Piller, who is a senior fellow at the Centre for Security Studies at Georgetown University and at the Brookings Institution, but he also looks back on an almost 30-year-long career as an intelligence officer with the CIA and the National Intelligence Council. Also here today is Ali Vyaz, who's a senior analyst on Iran at the International Crisis Group. And finally, my colleague Eli Garanmayer, who is a policy fellow at ECFR, focusing on Iran. So... Um, we are starting with the, the framework deal which was agreed in Lausanne between the Iranian government and the, the foreign ministers of the United States, the UK, Russia, Germany, France, um, China and uh, the European Union. And um, we are looking at uh, trying to understand what will happen in the negotiations over the next period of time until the, the 30th of June, which is the deadline for a comprehensive deal. But in the backdrop of that, the politics have already started heating up, particularly in, in Washington. So, Paul, what do you think is going to happen between now and then? What are the prospects for a, a deal being reached? And how do you think the, the political game in Washington is going to play out? Uh, the political game in Washington is going to be at least as intense over these next two months as it's been over the last several uh, All of the sides realize that uh, that's where the main action is in terms of uh, whether the, the deal, if a deal is uh, completed uh, by the negotiators, will be killed or not. It's going to, if it's going to be killed, it will be killed by the U.S. Congress. Uh, we've just had, uh, just uh, within the past uh, two weeks, uh, an agreement by the politicians in Washington on a piece of legislation uh, that was sponsored by the Republican chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Corker, uh, that lays out a procedure for the U.S. Congress to basically uh, say yay or nay on an agreement uh, within the first uh, month or so um, after it is negotiated. Now, this was legislation that the Obama administration had initially opposed, but after some modifications, uh, uh, the White House came to accept it. It said uh, it, can, it can live with it, it will sign it. Um, and, uh, uh, and the Democrats and Republicans uh, unanimously approved it in the committee. What this sets up um, is uh, for more fireworks, uh, political fireworks, uh, after uh, a, a deal is finally uh, signed by the uh, negotiators, um, which would not necessarily have occurred if we hadn't had this, this legislation. I might add that the, the Congress as a whole still has to debate this and there may be uh, further amendments and that's a story as well. But between now and June 30th, um, even before we get to the procedure that this uh, legislation has laid out, uh, we will see uh, an intense effort, a continuation of an already intense effort by opponents of the deal to raise whatever doubt they can uh, about uh, what is being negotiated. And that, and this is my last comment about where it stands right now, is that that's one of the disadvantages, in fact, of having had this announcement of a partial agreement. Uh, and I have to say the Iranian supreme leader probably had a valid point uh, when he was arguing uh, earlier in favor of getting the deal all in one fell swoop rather than sort of uh, uh, 
putting it out in parts because this is an open invitation for all the opponents to pick away at every detail they possibly can, uh, even if they don't have an alternative to offer that's better. So can you, if you go into the details of the deal, what do you think the main battlegrounds are going to be in terms of the American debate? If you can uh, dissect um, what you think the, the key areas of disagreement will be. Um, the ones that have gotten the most attention include uh, the duration of the agreement, the idea that there is a sunset clause in which uh, certain restrictions on the Iranians will not apply forever, but uh, will apply for 10 years or 12 years or 14 years or whatever. So the big argument being made by opponents is, oh no, after these, this period ends, uh, then the restrictions would be lifted and Iran would be free to have a, a race to the bomb. Um, uh, another major area are the so-called possible military dimensions, or PMD as it is sometimes abbreviated, which refers to uh, things that the Iranians are accused or suspected of doing that might be related to the development of nuclear weapons. And this, of course, is the province of the International Atomic Energy Agency and the inspections that it normally carries out. Um, but uh, this is an issue that the opponents have been hammering away at uh, as well. Um, and finally, certainly the, one of the toughest uh, parts that the negotiators still have to address is the schedule for relief from sanctions. And there's been a lot talked about and accusations even made that the public statements by the government's concern were, were not consistent about what's been agreed to as to whether or not uh, most of the sanctions would come off very quickly after a, an agreement is signed or whether they would be phased in only gradually. And here the, the argument being used by opponents in Washington is basically to uh, uh, broaden the agenda and say, uh, because Iran is uh, doing other things in the region that we don't like, uh, maybe we ought to keep these sanctions in place uh, much longer, even apart from the whole nuclear issue, because that uh, allegedly would give uh, the Iranians, that is to say sanctions relief, would give them more resources to do more untoward things in the Middle East. I think those are the main areas that uh, are being uh, discussed. And final question before we go to the others to... to broaden the discussion out is what do you think um, this congressional uh, process is going to mean for Obama's ability to actually deliver on his side of the deal and how much will he be able to tie the hands of his successors because obviously the the timing uh, for the deal and the presidential primary season um, means that there will be lots of promises made, I think, by certainly almost all the Republican candidates to, to undo bits of the deal. I mean, how much of it is going to be uh, vulnerable to a new president coming in and, and, and ripping up whatever, whatever Obama has managed to get through Congress? There has been a great deal of debate since this uh, compromise was reached eight days ago as to who got the better of the compromise. And some of those who, uh, who support the, the administration and the negotiating process are trying to take an optimistic view and saying this was actually a smart move by the White House uh, in that, it, for one thing, it takes off the table the attempt by some of the Republicans to say that this agreement ought to be, for U.S. political purposes, considered a treaty uh, which would require ratification, uh, the advice and consent by the United States Senate, a positive vote of two-thirds, which would be much harder to get than uh, what the administration needs now, which is to simply uh, keep one-third of either the Senate or the House plus one member uh, who would uh, uh, not be willing to uh, oppose it. Um, I'm 
I think the the White House actually has not quite that much reason to be optimistic about this. I think there are a couple of hazards that this uh, action sets up. Number one, it increases doubts in the Iranian minds as if they needed any more doubt because they already have substantial doubt as to um, the U.S. willingness and ability to, to live up to its part of a deal, given the congressional opposition that the Obama administration faces. And secondly, although the legislation does not, strictly speaking, require the U.S. Congress to have a vote uh, on a resolution of approval or disapproval in the first month or so after uh, uh, negotiations, it, it will be read that way. It, it is an open invitation to have a hasty, quick vote. And the sooner you have a vote, um, the less likely that the administration will prevail. Uh, if, in, in contrast to that, you had some time go by, uh, perhaps several months, perhaps a year, perhaps even more, in which the Iranians, uh, if they continue to live up to their terms of the deal, as they have for already a year and a half now with the preliminary agreement, it would become politically much harder as each month goes by for the opponents of the deal to say, we ought to destroy this whole thing. So, Ali, maybe we can come to you next. Um, to what extent is this debate in Washington being mirrored by uh, a, a kind of attempt to push back on on the deal in, in Tehran? I mean, how are the politics shaping up from an Iranian perspective? Uh, I agree with Paul that Congress remains the biggest wild card in these negotiations. In fact, the Iranian... Uh, political elite has shown a surprising uh, amount of discipline uh, in keeping a united front in dealing with this issue. Uh, this is really rare in, uh, in Iranian culture and uh, especially political culture. Uh, but since the understanding was announced, uh, uh, heavyweight politicians from across the political spectrum, from the reformists to uh, centrists who are allies of President Rouhani, uh, to conservatives, moderate conservatives like Ali Larjani, the Speaker of the Parliament, to even hardline conservatives like the commander of uh, the Revolutionary Guards uh, have come out in support of the negotiating team. Uh, even the Supreme Leader uh, has uh, uh, talked in very positive terms uh, about the achievements of the negotiators, although he has expressed his usual uh, pessimism about the intentions of the United States. Um, and uh, has tried to hedge his bets. But overall, I would say uh, the Iranian political scene uh, is much less problematic uh, than one would have anticipated. Uh, and this, I think, has two explanations. One is that there is a popular uh, demand for return from crisis to normalcy. Uh, and uh, there was a poll that was conducted in the aftermath of the announcement that showed 83% of the citizenry in, in Tehran uh, were very satisfied with the outcome of the negotiations uh, versus 4% who, who were discontent. Um, and Iranian politicians obviously don't want to be seen as an obstacle to diplomacy when there is such a high demand uh, for uh, an agreement. Uh, second, uh, I think the Iranians understand that if plan A is to end the sanctions, plan B, in case of failure, uh, is to erode the sanctions. And that would require uh, shifting the blame for any potential failure in, in diplomacy to the other side, to the West. Uh, and, and for that precise reason, I think there is a systemic decision in Iran not to provide any kind of pretext uh, that uh, would allow blaming Iran uh, for, for a collapse of the negotiations. 
Uh, and in that sense, I don't think, barring unforeseen developments, I don't, th- I don't think that domestic politics in Iran is going to be an obstacle. So, Ellie, you've you also been following the Iranian domestic debate, but also um, thinking about it from a European perspective and seeing what's coming out of different European capitals. I mean, how optimistic are you that um, this process is going to be uh, completed by the 30th of, of June? And what role do you think Europe in particular is going to play in, in securing a deal and in helping Obama to navigate the, the American political system? Sure. I think, whether rightly or wrongly, we have to accept that the last 18 months of the negotiations have initially been a Washington-led discussion with Tehran. But the Europeans have, uh, in in certain junctures, done a lot to help uh, shift the progress along. And in some instances, certain member states among the EU3 um, have hindered the progress in their differences between uh, Washington and particularly Paris on some of the technical issues. Um, at this stage, I think, especially in Lausanne, um, the new EU high rep, Federica Mogherini, uh, did a very good job in taking an active stance to um, get herself involved in the process, uh, both safeguarding the last week of the negotiations, which were very um, intensive between all the foreign ministers uh, at the table, and also uh, to ensure that the European role is almost reactivated. And I think also the German foreign minister, uh, Steinmeier, has played a much more active role than before uh, in terms of Germany's part in this in the last few months in trying to push towards the diplomatic uh, solution in this issue and encourage especially um, members of Congress with his visits to the US um, that this deal is really in the interest of both the United States and its European allies and if there is an obstructionist Congress then it does hinder the unity that has been created in the sanctions framework between the Europeans and the Americans, and in particular given Russia's behavior in the last few months on the sanctions front. Uh, If it is Congress indeed that hinders this progress, then I think Europeans will be faced with a very difficult decision on um, how far they go along uh, with the US legislature on this. But do you think, I mean, you think that if Congress blocks it, that the EU, because you wrote um, a paper last year saying that if this deal, if there is a deal and it ends up dying in Congress, that the Europeans should try and find a way of, uh, of saving at least some of it. Do you think that there is anything that would be able to be saved, that would be salvageable if it, if, uh, if it, get, if it gets blocked in Washington? I actually think given now that we've had more than a year of constructive and effective implementation from the Iranian side, it bolsters the case for the Europeans to act on the good faith that's been shown on the Iranian side, to at least, if not go it alone, which I don't think will be possible given the sanctions framework, to put much more pressure than they have been already on this diplomatic uh, track. And I think the Europeans also, as I mentioned, are going to face a difficulty in keeping the sanctions framework together if, for example, Russia or China decides that they're going to break away from the system. So whether or not they can salvage a deal or not, I think salvaging the framework of sanctions at this point in time is going to be quite difficult as well. So um, I'd like to move on briefly to what happens after a deal um, and to what extent that could change both the, the politics of the region, but also, above all, Western uh, relationships with Iran on, on other issues, uh, or, or if not Western, American and, and 
the relationships of different European governments um, uh, individually, if not collectively. Um, but maybe before we do that, just in a in a few words, I mean, how likely do you each think it is that we will have a deal on the first of July and that uh, that it will sail through Congress um, and uh, and be kind of strong enough to to give the Iranians confidence that um, that they have a long term partner on this? I mean, if you had to put a percentage number on it, Paul, uh, I would say probably seventy five to eighty percent that we will get a deal. <clears throat> only about fifty percent that it's going to make it through Congress. Okay, Ali. I agree with that assessment one hundred percent. Ali. I, I, I don't like putting numbers down, but I think I agree with that much more now after the parameters that were declared in Lausanne, because they were much more detailed than anyone expected them to be. So maybe, Ali, you could go first on, on this question about the, the regional um, uh, implications, because um, there is so much uh, tension, so, mo so many different theatres now where... Uh, Iran is uh, is one of the key players, whether it's in Yemen, in Syria, um, uh, and uh, the whole rise of, of ISIS and the way that we deal with that in Iraq has been a kind of massive uh, issue for, for, for all of uh, um, uh, for all the European countries and for the US as well as for, for the regional players. Um, but at the same time, simply getting a deal is going to be so complex for, for, for Washington that um, it's not entirely clear whether this will open up a lot of space for a realignment because there'll be so much work needed to be done to reassure um, both the Saudis and the, the Israelis that um, the Iran won't be given a free pass as a result of the nuclear deal. I mean, do, will, do you think this will be game-changing in terms of the, the wider politics of the region and the sort of relationship we can have with Iran, or is it more that this will just take one difficult issue off the table and you'll have sort of quiet tactical cooperation as we've had in the past, but not necessarily a kind of big strategic realignment? Well, this... A uh, nuclear agreement could potentially uh, turn into a gateway, allowing Iran and the West to cooperate on other issues of common interest. Uh, but I would, I would say that the real outcome of of this process, in terms of con regional implications, is really what the players will will make of it. And at this point in time, I think the patterns are uh, pointing in the wrong direction. Uh, the Iranians will have a motivation uh, to uh, signal to their core constituency uh, that um, uh, the nuclear deal is not going to change their strategic stance in the region. That might mean a freer hand for the revolutionary guards in the region. Uh, the Americans will have an incentive to reassure their allies, Saudi Arabia and Israel, that this deal is not transformative in terms of strategic alliances in the region. That means providing allies with more arms and political support for um, actions that are considered counterbalancing Iran's role in the region. Uh, the Saudis will have an uh, incentive uh, to um, counterbalance uh, what they see as an uh, Iran on the march and maybe even in collusion with the United States. Uh, the Israelis will have uh, uh, the motivation to uh, take actions that could potentially thwart any kind of additional improvement in the uh, relationship between Iran and the United States. And that, I think, makes 
makes for a very dangerous and combustible mix. Uh, if we are to make of a nuclear deal a transformative event for the regional dynamics, I think it requires the United States to condition its help and support of regional allies, especially of the Saudis, on engagement, diplomatic engagement uh, with Iran. And on the Iranian side, to take some concrete confidence-building steps that could signal to the Saudis that this deal is not coming at their expense and they're not pursuing regional dominance. Yeah. Uh, but for for now, there's no evidence of Two any of that. pretty big ifs, aren't they? I mean, yes. The dynamics all seem to be going, as you say, in, in the opposite direction. The, the one set of actors that Ali didn't mention were the Europeans, because you can see why the US is going to need to reassure its, uh, its other allies that um, and we'll come to Paul to talk a bit more about the American calculus afterwards. Um, and you can also see that the so far part of that has been, you know, supporting Saudi intervention in Yemen and um, uh, uh, and also um, speaking a quite a tough language about about some of the other the regional um, uh, theatres. Um, what about the Europeans? Because they don't have quite the same sorts of relationships with, with other players. And once, so far, there's been a very clear line of focusing on the nuclear deal, making sure that that is insulated from other uh, processes in order to make sure that a deal could be sealed. But I saw uh, Federica Mogherini yesterday in Brussels and She's very clear that once there is a deal, if it, if it is successful, that there could be some scope for, for uh, Europeans to play uh, more of a role on some of these regional issues, trying to bring uh, people together and creating some forum and reaching out to some of the big actors, um, not just the Iranians and the Saudis, but the, the Egyptians as well on, on, on these different issues. I mean, to what extent do you think there are areas where there could be a convergence of interests um, and where people might be willing to actually um, test out some different ways of working, Ali? Um, well, let me start with saying, you know, Mark, from the start, I've been one of the proponents that the Europeans have the political space, at least for the last six months, to engage on the regional issues with Iran and the main regional stakeholders, whether or not there's a nuclear deal. And I think the proximity of Europe to the ongoing conflicts in the Middle East gives them a necessity to engage much more than the US, which has the luxury of proximity on this issue. But understanding the restraints that there are at the moment, the political constraints, and also some of the divisions that exist in Europe, for example, with the UK and the French position being much more aligned uh, to the House of Saud than many of, of the other European uh, countries, which are uh, more prone to engagement with Iran at this particular moment in time, I think that the EU high rep will first of all have to sell her case uh, to the big European capitals uh, and also sell it as a initiative to reach out to both uh, the, the Arab front and, and the Iranians. So it can't be exclusively that she's going to reach out to one side. Uh, but I think given the years of isolation at the moment that they've that Iran and Europe have developed this task isn't going to be easy for either side however i think the eu high rep has a personal interest in this issue and has a better chance of being able to publicly 
uh, pursue this than the Americans have done. But I actually think also paradoxically, it's been Obama that till now has been edging towards this engagement with Iran. Uh, and even the State Department this week, you know, mentioned that although they're not willing to coordinate or work with Iran, they may be willing to discuss some issues. So I think this is an opportunity that actually Europe can go in the lead here and try and in open up the discussion points, if not really communicating or coordinating, but just opening up the discussion points in a way that can lead to meaningful diplomacy the same way that the nuclear talks have done. What's your sense, Paul? I mean, one of the most difficult features of this, I think, is that both from when you go to Tehran or to Riyadh, you do get a sense in both places that of emancipation, that they are kind of masters not just of their own destiny in a way that they haven't been for a long time, but also sort of they're enjoying the role of being leaders of something bigger than themselves. And until uh, that dynamic changes and the costs of the sort of, of the conflict which has been playing out in all of these different theatres become greater than this sense of... Uh, of, uh, of political excitement and space which comes from uh, from these sort of dynamics it's difficult to see um, either side really buying into into a kind of rapprochement and into a more kind of orderly regional security dynamic what's your sense both of, of their kind of judgment and also how what role Washington's going to play um, on these bigger regional issues and, and how uh, the deal might change the calculus for, for people sitting in the White House and the State Department uh, the nuclear agreement, uh, if it is reached and if it is not killed and it does take hold, uh, can be a gateway to uh, significantly uh, different relations, especially as it involves the United States and Iran bilaterally, but it, we'll get into some of these other multilateral dimensions as well. Uh, we should remember that just a little more than two years ago, uh, senior U.S. and Iranian officials were not even talking to each other. And now the, the foreign ministers uh, routinely uh, meet and talk about other issues uh, on the edges of the nuclear negotiations. Um, my own view is that that's one of the more significant things uh, about the agreement, above and beyond the nuclear issue itself. I think some of the opponents uh, of the agreement who fear it and oppose it precisely for this reason, that they don't want to see a wider relationship with Iran, are perhaps overstating their fears. Um, we're not about to see Iran and the United States become allies anytime soon. I don't even expect uh, full diplomatic relations anytime soon. If you want to draw a parallel here, you might think about when Mr. Nixon had his opening to China back in the early 1970s. It was uh, several more years, not until the late 70s, and under a different U.S. president that U.S. and China finally had diplomatic relations. Uh, you're quite right uh, in noting as, as uh, more than one person has noted, that we have this sort of countervailing uh, pressure to uh, continue to be tough on Iran or to be, appear to be tough uh, so as not to um, uh, lose the confidence of uh, allies in the region, be they the Israelis or Gulf Arabs. And I think uh, U.S. policy and actions right now regarding the Yemen conflict are the uh, uh, outstanding example of that. It's hard to see a uh, particular U.S. interest being served by eff effectively weighing into that, that dispute. But I, I would say uh, two other things about this in, in tempering my um, caution about these offsetting uh, actions. One is uh, the Obama administration right now is focused on, on just getting the deal and not getting it killed. 
so I think once we get through past that hurdle, if the Obama administration can get past that hurdle, and several months from now we've got a deal, it's being implemented, uh, and uh, the administration has fought off whatever attempts in Congress there were to kill it, uh, then there would not be the, quite the same imperative to do the sorts of things they're doing in Yemen and, and elsewhere. Uh, secondly, I would draw a major distinction among the regional states that are of such concern, especially in Washington, and particularly a distinction between Israel and the Gulf Arabs. Um, it, we're going to have an Israeli government of the same political complexion as we've had before. It will still be headed by Mr. Netanyahu. I do not see any degree of acceptance there. Um, uh, that is a government that will continue to try to uh, oppose this deal uh, all along. Uh, I think with the Saudis and the Gulf Arabs, and I, I, I cite uh, you know, King Salman's uh, relatively uh, favorable uh, comments and hopeful comments about what would come from the deal, are, are a different story. Um, and uh, I think we've already seen some indications uh, that the Gulf Arabs are already adapting to a somewhat different climate and atmosphere in anticipation of a deal. We've seen some of these senior high-level visits uh, uh, doing that. So I'm, I'm, I'm more confident about um, uh, a, a broader, more positive effect as far as the uh, immediate Persian Gulf region is concerned. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the, the scariest thing for everybody is, is what happens in your own elections, because that will determine, you know, even if things do go well. And I, you know, I note the decreasing percentages, 75% chance of a deal, 50% chance of it getting through Congress. I don't know what percentage chance of this being a gateway to something better. Um, but we'll see whether whether uh, it is like Nixon going to China or whether it's a process that ends with a kind of full stop after the next presidential elections when someone else comes in. But, but uh, there'll be lots of time to carry on that conversation and to talk more about the, the details of uh, the deal and the regional conflicts as we go up to the 1st of July and beyond. Uh, but thanks a lot for a fantastic discussion. Uh, just got one more segment left for this podcast, which is our, our bookshelf uh, segment. Um, so, Ellie, what are you reading at the moment? Um, so, I'm reading, Mark, a book by Robert McFarlane called The Mountain of the Mines, and it's just an incredibly uh, beautifully written book about man's fascination with mountains throughout time, and it made me think about Lausanne and overcoming <laughs> insurmountable challenges. Okay, what about you, Ellie? Well, it's probably because I'm living in Istanbul now, but I'm uh, reading a book by Charles King called Midnight at the Pera Palace. Uh, that's a hotel in Istanbul, and it's the story of uh, Turkey, uh, the demise of Ottoman Empire, and the uh, rise of the new republic uh, between the First and the Second World War through the story of one establishment, which is this hotel. Well, if it's literally what I'm reading right now, it's the book Longitude by Davos Sobel, which tells the story of how, especially back in the 18th century, uh, it was the English uh, clockmaker John Harrison who finally solved the problem of how mariners could figure out what longitude they were at <laughs> by, by uh, designing and building the most accurate clock uh, that could ever uh, be put on, on a ship up to that point. Great. I've just started reading a book on the, the right, called The Rise of Islamic State, ISIS and the New Sunni Revolution by Patrick Coburn, who's a British journalist. But it's quite a, uh, it's a very short tone, but it tells this incredible story about how, uh, you know, during a very short period of time, the vacuum which was left by Western interventions in the region created the space for this 
totally different sort of political uh, mobilisation to take place. And uh, he tells the story in, in a very journalistic way, so it's quite gripping, um, as well as uh, as very very thought provoking. Anyway, um, that really does bring us to the end of this podcast. Um, very interesting. Uh, topics which we'll come back to time and time again both in the run-up to the deal but also in the years ahead um, so from Paul Piller, Ali Baez, Ellie Garamaya and myself it's thank you for now there are links to all the publications that we mentioned on our website www.ecfr.eu and the editor of our podcast is Katerina Botel so thank you very much and goodbye for now